0: Welcome to a special bonus episode of Investing for Ocean Impact, the podcast providing the business case for conserving our ocean. I'm Dorothy Herr. In 2015, the United Nations adopted the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals, a set of ambitious targets aiming to move the world towards a better and more sustainable future. The 14th of these goals, SDG 14, is about conserving and sustainably using the ocean seas and marine resources. It represents the global framework for blue conservation and restoration. Seven years later, it's time to consider whether we have really made any progress on SDG 14. In only a few days, the 2022 UN Ocean Conference will take place in Lisbon. As we head into it, we need to ask ourselves, are we actually on the right track? In other words, are we swimming or are we drowning? really glad to welcome my guests for this episode. Nancy Karigitu, Kenya's Special Envoy for Maritime and Blue Economy. Hello, thank you for having me. Margaret Kulo, Global Finance Practice Lead at WWF. Hello, thanks a lot. Nice to see you all, hear you all. And Claudio De Sanctis, Head of Deutsche Bank's International Private Bank and CEO of their Europe, Middle East and Africa division.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you very much for the invite. Hi to everybody.
0: Nancy, I wanted to start with you. What is SDG 14 and why is it so important? I think a bit of contextualization of SDG
2: 14. Uh, the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development adopted the United Nations Sustainable Development goals. And as was said by the then Secretary General of the UN, it was called the Agenda for the People. And its key component, the SDGs, were the outcome of an intense intergovernmental process, considered by many as the most democratic and inclusive accomplishment in the history of the UN. So it's no wonder, therefore, that uh, the SDG 14, a standalone SDG dedicated to the oceans and their conservation and sustainable use was one of the outcomes. So SDG 14 emphasizes the need to conserve and sustainably use the oceans, the seas, and marine resources for sustainable development. And with good reason, because the maritime domain is the cornerstone of the livelihood of humanity, resources, and transport routes for up to 90% of the routes for global trade therefore underpinning economic prosperity and well-being of many national economies, particularly those in the developing countries.
0: Margaret, do you agree with that? And where does the nature-based solution part play in this?
3: Well, I, I love that framing of SDG 14 and the oceans more broadly as the cornerstone for livelihoods. And I also... Agree that this you know addition of an ocean-specific SDG is very helpful because it we do tend to forget it as people talk about. You know, green issues more generally, they do tend to focus sometimes exclusively on land. And the majority of the world's population lives close to a coastline. So uh, if we don't understand both the relationship between and the importance of the oceans to our lives and our livelihoods, everything from delivering us, you know, carbon sequestration to delivering us oxygen uh, and, you know, more maybe mundane things like tourism and extensive GDP addition or GDP uh, contribution, it's really important that the oceans uh, have their own SDG and that it sits within that context of the Sustainable Development Goals more broadly.
0: And Claudio, why is the Deutsche Bank interested in ocean conservation? Where do you come in?
1: The, The first and most relevant answer, although it might seem a bit naive, is because it's the right thing to do. You know, there's been a a rampant uh, perception that uh, financial institution and by reflection, people that work in them are very much and uniquely profit driven. Whereas I think it's essential for any company and for any institution to also have a view on what they can do in terms of furthering the communities and the world in which we live it should be an integral part of every company. And it's definitely an integral part of uh, DB of Deutsche Bank. Specifically to the oceans, I have a bit to do with it because uh, uh, when I picked what the business I am uh, tasked to lead would uh, take as a challenge inside of the ESG wider world, my personal passion for the oceans and my conviction that that was a very relevant topic made it an easy pick. And then, obviously, the next step becomes our clients, which are the center of our lives. If I had picked something that was not relevant for our clients, they would have told us so. Ocean and ocean conservation and the blue economy in general is increasingly in the forefront attention and passion of a lot of our clients.
0: And that's, as Nancy said, the SDGs were adopted in 2015. Have you already seen a shift in the marketplace vis-a-vis ocean finance and investment opportunity?
1: From 2015 to now, I think the world is completely different. And the acceleration we've seen in the last, I would say two to three years, particularly since COVID has been unprecedented. No? I think the, the shift has been from a general interest and awareness in the problem, in the overall, I would say climate, and then as a, as a consequence, conservation, land conservation, and then ocean conservation topic was very much something that was a high level fear for a lot of people. And from that, it then sort of translated into a desire to act. And today you start to see the first instruments to actually deploy capital. So it's been a pretty extraordinarily quick development over the last five, 10 years. Whereas we've been talking about, if I think of climate change, we've been talking about it for 20 years, plastic in the ocean, maybe 10, 15 years as a common you know, general topic. The desire so the consciousness that it becomes desire to act is far more recent uh, in large
0: scale. Margaret, have you observed a similar trend?
3: Yeah, I think we we've really seen the health of the ocean hit the global agenda like never before. uh, And that's a really good thing. There have been some specific areas of progress that WWF has really been proud to be a part of, including the Big Plastics uh, Pollution Coalition, uh, the Sustainable Blue Economy Finance Principles. More recently, we, we've we launched this new uh, methodology of using value at risk, a value at risk framework for analysis of blue economy risks and opportunities. We've seen some really impressive commitments from governments, financial institutions, Philanthropists to re- restore and protect the ocean for the benefit of people, nature. And climate. Now, what we're really focused on is looking at delivery against those commitments because we need to act a lot more urgently and at scale. We know from the reports of the intergovernmental panels, both on climate change and on biodiversity ecosystem services, that the challenges before us are really significant. So, there's no path to one and a half degrees Celsius world without nature, without a healthy ocean, we can't deliver the other SDGs without a healthy ocean. And, you know, let's really see that stuff delivered now. Indeed. Does it translate
0: into the SDG 14 targets to being achieved and specifically the 14.2 target around protect and restoring ecosystem? How well are we doing?
3: Well, I think we have a lot of opportunities to Push that over the course of this year, not just in the the uh, Ocean Conference that's coming up, but in the ongoing conversations around the um, Convention on Biological Diversity. There are ongoing negotiations for the new global biodiversity framework, and we've been pushing, for example, for a transformative, comprehensive, measurable post twenty twenty global biodiversity framework under that convention, and in a Agreement to update the SDG targets. And that would include, for example, protecting the 30% of the ocean by 2030. So all of these conversations are really closely linked, and we should continue to see them as closely linked. Because if you live in a place, you know, the fact that there's one conversation on climate and another conversation on biodiversity and another conversation on desertification, for example, it doesn't really matter to you in your place. You're seeing the impacts of climate change whether that's storm surge or flooding or droughts, all in the same place, all in one. So we we have to have these conversations really linked together.
0: Nancy, from a government perspective, how well are we doing on achieving SDG 14?
2: I think we have to contextualize uh, the SDG 14 within the other SDGs. And the fact that uh, 2020, which was a very extraordinary year in the human history because the pandemic really hit us. And with a cost of over 6 million lives, devastated global economy, which has upended all spheres of human life. The downtown has pushed us further, you know, further down the road from where we expected to be, not just on SDG 14, but on the other SDGs as well. With hearing that we've got Uh, between 119 and 124 million people more having slid down into extreme poverty, which has really compounded challenges to poverty eradication and also introduced and or exhibited such things as conflict, uh, climate change and also ocean management. So the global community is at a very critical stage in its pursuit of the SDG globally, not just SDG 14. And therefore, the pandemic has threatened, you know, decades of development gains and further delays transition to greener, more inclusive economies and therefore has thrown the progress of SDGs generally further off track, particularly when you think of developing economies who have to balance between development priorities and now the SDGs, that becomes a major challenge, because in that context, the progress in many target areas of SDG 14 have not been spared, and that has slowed down some of the advancement we had already made. Then the sustainability of our oceans therefore demands renewed efforts in order to safeguard biodiversity areas. Then we look at the implementation of international instruments uh, to conserve and responsibly manage the oceans. This has remained uneven, again, based on the developmental stage of various uh, economies. We have improved regulation, yes, and effective monitoring and surveillance in some areas. But we, we need to assist some of the developing countries, again, because of uh, differentiated priorities and budget uh, because then when a country is faced, you know, making choices between providing food, security, uh, health, then of course areas that are targeted by the SDG 14, the tendency is for them to take second place. Most important is the funding uh, because when when you're measured against the global target areas, the scales of funding, it means that uh, the money that will be allocated to marine research from public, from private, then also reduces. And we've seen very little allocation for marine research in this kind
0: of context. Claudia, picking up on that, where do you think a Deutsche Bank can come in when it is financing ocean conservation and also with the longer view of nature-based solution as they play this win-win for climate people and, in this case, also biodiversity. Where's the opportunity that you see?
1: So you, you, you would look at the problem dividing investment in three different mainstreams. No? The first stream is institutional investment. The second one is private investment, which could be private individuals who invest with a clear view of making a profit or would invest with a view of having impact in a community, in an area, in a, in a specific uh, domain, without necessarily economics being the primary driver, but not with a charitable angle. And finally, you have charitable donations. So those are the three main groups, right? And I think we play and we, we, we are doing our very best to play a role in all three fields, And today, if you look at, for example, marine research, you know, if you're financing and and, and we are actually doing that in the Maldives with the, the Deutsche Bank Ocean Resilience Philanthropy Fund, which we found partially in our clients' fund, right? We are there financing a research project on corals and creating a coral data bank, genetic data bank. That's something that in five to 10 to 20 years can have a fundamental impact on protection and repopulation of corals in the Maldives and in other tropical waters. Financial return on that today in existence. And here obviously we play an excellent role because you have a lot of actors, a lot of families of all sort of families around the world who want to participate, don't have a direct access to initiative like this. So there we pull people in order and we offer them a vehicle in order to do this kind of investments. Impact is the next step, is probably the the application of some of that research in ways that are actually providing a sustainable development for local economies. Tourism would be an immediate uh, view on that. And for that, we're actually creating specific vehicles that allow investors to pull in with a clear view of having an impact on communities, helping ocean conservation, helping coastal economies, but in a profitable way, in a profitable, sustainable way. The most difficult today is conveying actually the largest pool of of, of investment, which is the institutional part. And I think for that, you need the concept that nature is not an infinite capital that can be somehow used without paying for it. I think the moment you insert that and you create the right rules, I think we definitely need more regulations in that forum, then you will be able to draw in the, 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 the institutional investors and those will definitely need us as a provider of solution, as a, a packager of solution and a link between projects and available capital.
0: You mentioned already a challenge or two. Could you summarize for us what are the main challenges and barriers to really getting that big money flowing into ocean?
1: The biggest challenge today is they they look at it from a monodimensional point of view, understandably so. I, I'm not criticizing them for them. That's why I think the reference framework needs to change and the regulations need to come in. Basically, they respond to investors and to shareholders, and the only dimension they're looking at or they're forced to look at is financial return. In the competition of that financial return, theoretically, up until yesterday, nature damage. So the the damaging of the consumption of natural capital was an irrelevant variable. And as long as that is the case, there is very little sort of incentive investing in that domain. The moment you basically create, I think the decarbonization and the carbon credit is a good example. The moment you create a financial regulated incentive to look at the natural consumption and you force companies and you force the market to actually look at natural consumption as a variable that needs to be accounted in your ledger, then that creates the immediate need. And then actually you will see enormous amount of capital being deployed because in all fairness, we are not alone as a company in feeling the necessity and the desire to contribute to society, not to be positive agent of social change. ESG in the last two years has been a phenomenally strong drive for many companies if you provide that framework, then you also give them a chance to deploy that capital much faster and much more effectively.
0: And Margaret, where is someone like WWF in this equation to help pave the way, but also pave the way for finance into nature-based solution as part of the broader blue economy and achieving SDG 14?
3: Let me start by adding one more category to the three that Claudio laid out, and that is the opportunity for blended capital. That's the combination of public and private um, funds. WWF, for example, is part of a really innovative partnership called the Dutch Fund for Climate and Development, or DFCD, that brings together multiple stakeholders, particularly to focus finance Proactively to invest in climate and nature solutions because a lot of those, you know, as Claudia mentioned, for a variety of reasons, the economic case is extremely clear, the financial case is much less so because we're dealing with a whole series of public goods with um, regulatory structures that don't incorporate the costs of using natural capital or the cost of uh, overusing, for that matter, natural capital. So, this uh, Dutch Fund for Climate and Development, DFCD, is a 160 million euro fund made up of a grant a debt and an equity facility and this fund is not focused on the oceans alone uh, but there's a great example of an investment um, for climate resilient mangrove shrimp production in the mekong delta in south vietnam and the project is designed to protect biodiversity ecosystems improve livelihoods, in particular for smallholder farmers, and to sequester millions of tons of greenhouse gas. Specifically, some of the targets include bringing 16,500 hectares of forest wetland under sustainable management. It will sequester about 10 million tons of greenhouse gases a year of which about a million and a half of those uh, come from planting additional mangroves, uh, which we know has the additional benefit of storm surge protection and more ecosystem and habitat for the shrimp growth. This should scale up capacity of the higher value organic certified shrimp exports, and it should increase smallholder farmer livelihoods by at least 10%, while also protecting biodiversity and those mangrove ecosystems. So I think we need a lot more of these sorts of investments that focus on this combination of environmental, social, economic development benefits. And you get that by blending capital and by incorporating uh, really different kinds of stakeholders, which you would not have combined you know, five years ago, uh, certainly not 10 years ago. So I think we're seeing a lot of development in this space that's going to be very good for all of us from a livelihood perspective, as well as from a, an economic and a, an environmental perspective.
0: Claudia, back to you. Is this the kind of project that eventually someone like Deutsche Bank would look at or are the dimensions still too far apart from each other?
1: No, no, I think, I think it's, uh, and, and the concept of when the capital has been successfully applied in other areas. So I think Margaret is perfectly right. And it is definitely something interesting. I think ultimately one of the things that we still need to work on is very much the understanding of our clients. So for us, that remains one of the most important challenges we have. Just in my area, to give you an idea, we have about 3 million clients This, by geographical distribution and by the type of services we offer, will be all people of a certain degree of means, economic means. So you can imagine the economical and political powers that come with such a large group of people. I think if you and we are in the process of doing this, if you were to question them, if you were to ask them if uh, ocean conservation, biodiversity, if these are important topic, they would all... Say yes. I mean, the the percentage of people would say no, it's irrelevant. It would be very, very low. If you at the same time ask them, what can you do about it? I would say the very vast majority, probably 60, 70%, would answer, we should consume less plastic. The amount of people that would say, well, I could deploy my investment to further that goal, Mm -hmm. it's less than 3%. So a big part of what we need to do is ultimately education.
0: Well Nancy this is the perfect segue back to you. There is a big conference coming up soon, the UN Ocean Conference where Kenya is the co-host. Can it play a role in creating more knowledge, educating the broader, you know, investment community? What do you expect from the conference?
2: Exactly what you've said. That's exactly the reasons that Kenya is very happy to co-host this conference to generate conversations around this kind of topics, the funding, the financing. We've got a lot of uh, multi-sectoral players coming from all government, academia, research, as well as the intergovernmental and non-governmental organizations. And therefore, with that kind of mix and with the different uh, menu on the table, a lot of side events, I know Kenya is hosting no less than six. There will be one on financing. There will be one on plastics, pollution, and, you know, a multiplicity of issues. And I can't think of any better way than through those conversations to come up with solutions and the kind of uh, structured information that we need. It will be an opportunity to exchange experiences, to create collaboration, to bring opportunities for technical assistance for other, you know, leave nobody behind, basically.
0: Margaret, what do you expect from the upcoming UN Ocean Conference?
3: Well, I think it's going to be a big highlight, uh, landmark event for the year. And I think with it following so closely on the Our Ocean Conference, Stockholm plus 50, the uh, negotiations on the global biodiversity framework happening over the course of the year, some of that also in Nairobi, I think the time is really ripe that we take advantage of the growing momentum and really make progress to secure a nature, climate, people, positive future, I think, A strong ocean conference should include really clear action to implement the commitments made at the first ocean conference and also include bold new commitments to mobilize this urgent action to deliver the Sustainable Development Agenda and SDG 14 in particular. We hope at WWF that we'll see really strong action in areas like Ensuring the rights of indigenous peoples and local communities are recognized and secured through the delivery of SDG 14, so that they can equitably benefit from use of the ocean and its resources, an ambitious new ocean treaty on marine biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction, including a process for designation of high seas marine protected areas, and we'd like to see a global moratorium on deep sea mining until it can be clearly demonstrated that such activities won't cause adverse impacts on biodiversity and the marine environment. So we're also excited. There's going to be a sustainable blue economy investment forum on June 28th as part of these uh, discussions. And that will provide a really important opportunity to focus on the development of and investment in a more sustainable blue economy.
2: Can I add just one more point? I'm hoping that uh, there will be some progress made on having an instrument on managing plastic pollution. Because so far, actions we've taken have been voluntary and maybe not going as far
0: as we should. Claudia, usually these UN conferences are for government representatives and non-governmental stakeholders. What's the case for Deutsche Bank to be at an event like that?
1: Trust is very important. And I mean, ultimately, the reason to be there are multiple. One is, it's a statement, no? It's a statement because uh, if you roll back 10 years, you would have not found a financial institution attending one of these conferences because it had no direct, immediate uh, relevance. Second is to stand next to our partners. You know, I have not mentioned that so far, but if we have made any progress, if we've had any relevance, if, if our voice has been heard at all, it's very much because of the work we did with Aura. Without them, you know, we would have not had the understanding and the know-how necessarily in house to actually have a voice that matters. Personally, the reason to be there is obviously, as you can see, I don't have a fraction of the knowledge that people like Nancy and Margaret have, and you know, those are good opportunities to catch up a bit and learn. And that's uh, also a very useful byproduct of those events. the participation at those events.
0: Wonderful, thank you. Well, last round, Nancy, how do we ensure the conference is not just talk but actually ends up in action? It
2: must come out with very, very solid resolutions and I think some of the conversations we've been having towards the build-up to the conference so that we can take some solid proposals, not just talk and the series of Blue Talks that have been held in capitals around the world to generate the kind of uh, outputs that we want. I think we've made a solid foundation and contribution to what we expect to come out of the conference. Really, we have no time as the planet, and we must come out of Lisbon with concrete plans as we go to COP27 in Egypt.
3: This is a really key question, and it's one that hangs over many discussions in sustainability these days. And we certainly saw a lot of this and the climate discussions at Glasgow as well. I think one of the things that we find can be really effective in joining commitment and action is building these links across policy and planning exercises so that you embed commitments to decarbonize, conserve nature, ensure sustainable development, both in the terrestrial and the marine environment. So, for example, a really well-designed, well-managed, well-funded marine protected area can be a priority tool for actually restoring and protecting ocean health and resilience and, and making that link to the people who rely on those communities. I think... Most importantly, the ocean contributes substantially to national economies, but very little of that economic value finds its way back into protecting and restoring the ocean's natural assets, or for that matter, assisting the coastal communities to develop environmental, social, economic resilience, to climate change. And, you know, back to my mangrove example, mangrove restoration alone could save an estimated $65 billion a year in terms of storm and flood damage. And if lost or destroyed, on the other hand, 15 million more people a year could face catastrophic flooding. So I think the risk of business as usual in an increased ocean investment are becoming more evident, not least uh, to the insurance sector, which faces the immediate impacts of climate related events on coastal infrastructure, but also investors encountering declining resource base due to over extraction as the realization of the potential benefits grow through efforts like your podcast and and hosting the um, advocacy work that will happen at the UN Ocean Conference. I think the gap between need and ambition, the gap between commitment and action should really close. And those gaps have to close if we're going to meet the challenge that's in front of us.
0: Claudio, your last opportunity for a word, a call for action.
1: So the call for action from a financial industry point of view vis-a-vis the conference in Lisbon has to pertain to the development and sort of the regulation of financial instrument that allow basically the financing of many, many small projects in one single instrument. So what comes to mind is nature-backed securities, essentially. Because it's very difficult to imagine that we will fix the problem with one single financial investment in one big project. The reality is that the biggest impact comes through many small initiatives, and yet they need financing. So creating a link between the many initiative and pulling the famous institutional capital, it's something that is very relevant. Banks can try to do that, financial institutions can try to do that, but ultimately, if you create a regulatory framework, sort of uh, rules and regulations around it, and potentially incentives around it, then you create the industry and we can put the industry in motion. So I think if, if we could get that out of the conference, it would be fantastic. And then as a human being, I would hope that we have some more concrete commitment from the political parties that represent us in these conferences right uh, you were asking what can we do what, what can we do to get better results I think we need to vote better ultimately and this is not uh, obviously as a, as a financial institution professional as much as a, as a citizen of the world that's that's what we need uh, ultimately.
0: a big thank you to my guests this week Nancy Karigithu Margaret Kulo and Claudio De Sanctis. And if you're listening before you attend the UN Ocean Conference, I wish you a very exciting few days in Lisbon. And I hope you're ready to get inspired and connect with the many projects that are trying to close the gap between commitment and action. Investing for Ocean Impact is a fresh air production on behalf of IUCN. It was produced by Phil Sansom with production assistance from Michel Bonnet. If you'd like to find out more about Isen's work on Blue Natural Capital, please visit our website, bluenaturalcapital.org. We'll be back with season two of the podcast in October. Make sure to follow or subscribe to the podcast so that you get the episodes as soon as they arrive.